Hello, good evening and welcome to our weekly Resistance TV slot. Tonight's discussions about corporate criminals. Judging by the reportage in the mainstream media, though, you'd think that corporate crime's a rarity, but you'd be wrong. Rod Driver's going to argue tonight that we're actually surrounded by big companies committing crime on a daily basis. Rod says the current system's not fit for purpose. It gives rich rewards to executives and shareholders when companies commit serious crimes, and they're hardly ever caught or prosecuted. And when they are, the penalties are usually pretty pathetic. But woe betide a private citizen who commits a crime, particularly if they're a working class citizen. In those circumstances, the lawbreakers feel the full weight of the state's judicial and penal system, neither of which are fit for purpose either, in my opinion. So, Rod, corporate criminals, what's to be done about them? Uh, hi, Chris. Thanks for that hi. great introduction. Um, well, we'll come on to what to do about them uh, later in the show. So if I, if I begin by kind of telling you a little bit more about um, what's really going on so, uh, so people get some, um, some perspective. So the, the point is basically that white-collar crime is actually an enormous area, but um, is so badly reported uh, by the press that most people really don't understand uh, the scale of it. So I'm going to start by talking about a small number of kind of famous cases and a little bit of hist historical stuff, and then we'll uh, we'll expand uh, upon that. Uh, so if we if we go back a few hundred years. Um, we realized that corporate crime is nothing new. So a long time ago, we had the British East India Company. So there was this giant uh, international company that was basically an extension of the British government, and it ruled India. And uh, millions of people died because of famines whilst they were in charge, and they committed many, many uh, crimes. And they were eventually investigated um, in the courts uh, by the courts uh, in Britain. And then you jump forward uh, a century or two and you, you go to America and people may have heard of the expression, the robber barons. So these were the, the biggest companies in America. So this is oil, banking, steel and railroads. And, and they committed murder, kidnapping and extortion, all with the consent of the US government. OK, and we'll talk about this relationship between corporate crime uh, and governments a, a bit more as, as we go, uh, go through. So if we jump forward to the, to the present day, most people will be aware that occasionally some crime or wrongdoing or fraud committed by a big company is mentioned uh, in the mainstream press. Uh, so uh, a few years ago, Volkswagen, the car company, uh, got a lot of very bad publicity for manipulating their emissions testing. And uh, WikiLeaks, the, um, the organization that allows whistleblowers to release information about government and corporate crimes, uh, exposed documents about an oil trading company called Trafigura, which was dumping toxic waste off the uh, Ivory Coast in Africa. And uh, the estimate is that about 100,000 people needed hospital uh, treatment uh, following uh, that uh, toxic dumping. And then uh, people will have heard in the press about the Deepwater Horizon oil explosion, uh, which created immense uh, pollution um, off the coast of the United States. And people died. And this was all because of cost-cutting by uh, executives. And a few people 
uh, will be aware that the most famous case about 20 years ago uh, was a big American company called Enron. If you've never heard of the Enron case, it's really worth looking up on the internet to understand it in more detail. So Enron was a sort of energy company, but it was also a trading company. And they realized that if they could shut down um, a power plant for maintenance at the right time, at peak demand, then there wouldn't be enough energy or electricity and prices would go through the roof and they could make astronomical profits. And uh, there was a major investigation. And this was one of the few occasions when, in fact, um, the wrongdoing was so extreme that there were investigations in relation to uh, criminal charges and so on. But that's slightly unusual, actually. What we realize when we start looking, though, is that this is much more widespread than people realize. So, in fact, all of the big uh, medicine companies, so the pharmaceutical industry, they have all been fined for fraud. And in fact, their uh, sort of wrongdoing and unethical behavior is so extreme that if we get the chance later in the year, it might be worth doing a whole program about them. But in fact, they devote vast resources to exaggerating the benefits of their medicines and uh, lying about the downsides. And then if you look at other industries, uh, uh, I work with a, a guy called Andrew Feinstein, who's the world's leading expert on the weapons industry. And he has said he has never come across a weapons deal that is entirely legal. They are all somewhat illegal. Uh, so you realize this is happening all over the place. Now, one of the main ways in which companies um, uh, commit fraud is by price fixing. So a cartel is when companies, op not openly, when they work together, they have agreements, often unofficial agreements, often unwritten agreements, to manipulate the prices of the goods they sell. So the most famous one of these is actually way back in 1928, where the world's biggest seven oil companies sat down together at a meeting in Scotland and worked out, out how to divide up all the world's oil resources between them to, to do price fixing to keep their profits extremely high. If we look more recently, I uh, in my research, I came across examples of um, British Airways and Virgin, um, being investigated for manipulating prices, insurance companies, energy suppliers, mobile phone companies, and even Chris mentioned last week how there were investigations into utility companies uh, because they were making uh, excessive profits through manipulation. And there's a European uh, organization that looks at price fixing in Europe. And I had a look on their website just a couple of months ago. And just in the last few months of 2020, they had issued fines to companies who were involved in price fixing of food packaging, canned vegetables, and car parts. So you realize this is not just a handful of incidents. It's across almost all industries. If you go back over time, industry after industry has been fined uh, for price fixing. And in fact, I came across a very interesting case study that looked at the, the three big American car companies going back a few decades before they had much competition from other international companies. And they actively worked together to block the introduction of safety equipment, so safety glass and safety belts. So thousands of people died and many more thousands of people were severely injured because these companies were so keen to keep their profits high by avoiding introducing um, safety uh, equipment. So they, they worked together 
um, to limit competition. So if we look at a little bit more about how companies are able to get away with these things, we come across a concept which is known as regulatory capture. They don't need to worry about the terminology. Most industries have an organization that's called a regulator who's supposed to be like the policeman for that industry. So if you look, say, at finance, they're supposed to have an organization that's a final financial regulator. Well, we all discovered during the 2008 financial crisis that all of the big banks and financial companies had been committing multiple serious frauds. So the financial regulator was not fit for purpose. It was not doing any serious regulation. And various insiders were interviewed and they said, well, we didn't see ourselves as policemen. We saw ourselves as enablers of the industry. And if you actually look more widely, this is documented much better in America, but they have other uh, regulators such as the Environmental Protection Agency or the Food and Drug Administration that are meant to be regulating an industry to stop crimes occurring. But in fact, so many of the people within the regulator come from industry that again, they end up as enablers. So we have this system called a revolving door where people move backwards and forwards between big business and regulators, which means that regulators are not really attempting to regulate properly. And there've been lots of examples where whistleblowers from these regulators have come forward and said, look, they're, they're not doing their job properly or companies are committing crimes. And what happens is that instead of acting on what the whistleblowers say, the whistleblowers get sacked. So you start to realize that the system is not really interested in stopping companies doing harm. It is more interested in enabling companies to do what they want to do. Now, we can see this much more clearly if we look at the international situation. So at least in advanced nations, we do have regulators, right? In many poor countries, there are no serious regulators. So we see exploitation and pollution on a vast scale. So the most famous case was uh, back a few decades, Union Carbide and the Bhopal uh, poisonous gas explosion in India, which killed thousands of people. And it's believed people are still uh, suffering from that incident many decades later today. Other people will have seen in the news about Shell Nigeria, where various protesters uh, were, were murdered by the Nigerian government. Now, what you realize is that Shell Nigeria and the Nigerian government are not separate organizations. They have so many personnel in common that they are basically the same organization. So Shell Nigeria is trying to make corporate profit by accessing oil on somebody else's land, and the government is happy to actually kill people, to execute people in order to pursue the oil and for the company to make profits. And you see similar things in many mining companies. So there's a famous mining company called Freeport, which has a terrible track record in countries like Indonesia, where their security staff murder uh, local uh, people and local protesters. And they do it with impunity. They do it with the backing of the, of the government. Okay, so these are very clear cases of crime. But in fact, there's a whole bigger area where we say, well, hang on a minute. Companies are actively involved in writing the laws. They are actually saying that we do this activity, probably in a reasonable society, that would be a crime. 
we don't want you to call it a crime. So they get the government and the regulators to redraft the laws and their own company lawyers redraft the laws. So what should be a crime becomes legal. So ordinary people can see that their activities are extremely unethical, but technically they're not breaking any laws. So uh, if you look, say, at uh, clothing manufacturers using supplies in Bangladesh, again, there was a very famous incident called Rana Plaza, where an enormous building full of subcontractors, full of people working, collapsed. Even though people had warned that the building was unsafe, nobody wanted to do anything about it, and large numbers of people died. And collapsing buildings is not a one-off. It goes on all the time in poor countries. And the, the point is that companies in advanced nations, they don't want the responsibility of ensuring that workers in other countries are safe. Governments in other countries don't want that responsibility either. So nobody has a responsibility. So there are other famous cases that people will know about. So Nestle was selling powdered milk to mothers in developing countries and trying to claim that it was better than breastfeeding. And Nestle achieved, uh, received a great deal of negative publicity for that. And so they changed their, their strategy. We see Coca-Cola, they've appeared in the mainstream media because they uh, deplete the water supplies. It requires a huge amount of water to make Coca-Cola. Well, that actually means that local farmers can't get the water supply. Uh, we see uh, food companies exploiting coffee growers uh, and other food suppliers in developing uh, countries. We've seen the, the water companies who've taken charge of privatized water supplies in developing countries, then cutting off the poorest people because the water company is not interested in providing water to the poorest people. It's interested in making the biggest profit. So people get sick, they die, because when they get cut off from clean water, they need it and they can't survive. And we see, again, go back to the pharmaceutical industry, some very famous cases that, again, made it into the mainstream news, where the companies didn't want developing countries to, to make uh, cheap medicines because it would affect their profits. And so even though there are complex international laws allowing poor countries to make cheap medicines, companies got their governments, this is the British and American and other European governments, to threaten developing countries and say, listen, if you don't do what we want to do when it comes to medicines, then uh, we're going to apply uh, sanctions. And in fact, there's a great case study of tobacco. Now, most people will know of the harm that tobacco has caused, and everybody except the very youngest viewers will be aware there have been major court cases, particularly in America, where we discovered that the tobacco companies had lied under oath for decades about the harm of nicotine and the addictiveness of, uh, of nicotine, and they had manipulated research data uh, for many decades. Well, so we think that in Britain and America, hey, the problem of tobacco is being solved. You know, people are uh, starting to decrease its use. There's no advertising and so on. But actually, if you start looking in developing countries, the big tobacco companies are advertising to get children addicted to smoking. And the cigarettes in many developing countries have much lower regulatory standards. So they're actually more addictive. They're, they're even worse uh, for, for young people. And there was a very famous case where Taiwan wanted to make sure that tobacco companies could not advertise uh, their cigarettes. They wanted to, to keep the, the problem of the health problem due to 
smoking as small as possible. And the tobacco companies went to the American government and the American government threatened the Taiwan government and said, you allow this advertising or we will impose sanctions. So you start to realize it's not about governments, that is advanced governments, being unable to regulate companies. It's about governments in advanced nations actually working with companies to commit some of the most unethical uh, activities. So there's some specific cases there where British Aerospace made massive bribes to the Saudis to buy uh, weapons from British Aerospace. The police did actually want to investigate this, the Serious Fraud Office. This is highly unusual, right? This type of thing hardly ever gets investigated. But the government, the British government, forced the Serious Fraud Office to back down and they said they couldn't investigate them. So again, you realize these crimes are committed with the backing of the US um, government. And in fact, the United Nations tried for 20 years to introduce a global code of conduct uh, to improve the activities of big companies internationally. But there were so many vested interests, so many governments like America, Britain, Europe, and so on, all working against the United Nations that eventually the UN just, uh, just gave up. And this has effects elsewhere too. So after the 2008 financial crisis, many European governments wanted stricter banking regulations. Well, it was the, the British government who were the lead um, kind of lobbyists trying to push for weak bank regulations throughout Britain and Europe. So the government was actually blocking that. And um, in future weeks, at some point, we might one day talk about war and war crime by Britain and America. And quite often, nobody talks about really why wars are happening. Well, wars tend to happen for economic purposes. There's some very famous examples. So in 1954, the United Fruit Company controlled large parts of Guatemala. Well, the government of Guatemala wanted to stop the United Fruit Company from exploiting the people of Guatemala. Well, the United Fruit Company didn't like that. So they went to the US government and the US government actually overthrew the government of Guatemala to allow the United Fruit Company to continue dominating the country. And this is where the term banana republic comes from. It's a country that is dominated by, uh, in this case, um, a fruit company. And there were other examples when the American government overthrew the leadership of Indonesia in the 1960s. And immediately afterwards, there's a huge meeting where big American companies, General Motors, American Express, sat down with the genocidal dictator who had just taken control of Indonesia and decided how to chop up the Indonesian economy for the benefit of American companies. So, so that's, that's uh, sort of a very, very, very brief summary. And remember, these are the more famous cases. This is the tip of a very, very big iceberg. And in fact, various regulators have said, look, we're massively underfunded. We don't have the staff to investigate these things properly. The, the, uh, the examples that we cite on our website are where we've handed out a fine. This is a tiny fraction of the, the actions that we would like to investigate, but we just don't have the resources to do it. So um, a, a guy called Joel Bakken wrote a book about 20 years ago called the corporation and it became a famous film actually where he explains that big companies pursuing profit are basically acting like psychopaths and in fact he's recently made a sequel it hasn't been released worldwide yet and he says the reason he's made the sequel is that 
a lot of people think that this corporate wrongdoing stuff that was known about 20 years ago, they think things have got better. There's some quite good propaganda and PR that companies put out to, to say, hey, yeah, you know, we're nicer. We're not so exploitative. We're not so criminal, right? None of it is true. <clears throat> so uh, if you look at all the things that Joel Bakken talks about, so he talks about failures, democracy, inequality, environmental issues, climate change, species extinction, uh, education and welfare, they're all getting worse. They're at crisis levels. So he felt it necessary to, to make this sequel and some very interesting interviews with him about the sequel, although, as I say, it hasn't, it hasn't come out yet. So the point is, you've got companies that focus on making profit as their only goal, irrespective of the downsides to everybody else. Now, if you had small companies doing this, maybe that's okay, because they don't really have any power or influence. Once you get very big, powerful companies focusing only on their own profits, irrespective of the downsides, then very bad things start happening. And there's an interesting history to this. Uh, in 1886, there was a US legal ruling where the uh, courts used laws that were intended to give rights to freed slaves. And they gave the same rights to corporations. So basically, from that point onwards, companies were treated like people. Now, strangely enough, it's turned out that internationally, companies have more rights than government, than individuals. They can sue governments for potential lost future profits in secret courts. So it's not just that they have more rights. If we look at their responsibilities, as Chris mentioned in the introduction, if they do um, some serious crime, an individual committing that crime would be sent to jail. When a company commits that crime, we can't send a company to jail. We could shut it down, but governments don't want to do that. So all they do is give them a slap on the wrist. They give them a fine. But this basically means that there are no laws for big companies. The law for individuals is something we have to operate within. Okay, The law for companies is actually just a cost of doing business. They can break the law if they want to, if they feel it will be profitable, even if they get caught. So there's a problem that companies are basically making the laws and the laws that we have are absolutely uh, inadequate for holding these organizations to account. And they're incredibly big. So if you look at the biggest company in America, Walmart has 2 million employees. That's a huge mm -hmm. company. Most profitable was Apple last time I looked in 2019. It had profits of 50, $55 billion. You can't imagine how big these companies are and how powerful and influential they are politically. Um, so just to kind of wind it up, to point out there's a great deal of propaganda and PR relating to companies. So we're told all the time, hey, it's okay for big companies to, to pursue the profit motive. Nobody in the press, in the government, ever makes a distinction between big companies and small companies. The idea that if you apply profit motives to big companies, bad things happen, well, that's never mentioned. So the widespread harm of big companies, that's never mentioned. As Chris mentioned at the beginning, you'll see an occasional mention in the press of one company. It's presented as a bad apple. In fact, it's happening all around us every day. So the question, would the world be better off without such powerful companies? That question is never asked by the press, and it's never asked by the government. But in fact, the, the answer is very obviously, yes, we would be much better off without these powerful organizations 
pursuing very selfishly, very aggressively, and often very criminally, their own uh, profits. Uh, okay, there's uh, there's lots more I could add, but let's... Uh, okay, I'll... no, that's yeah. great. Thank, that's really fascinating. Thanks very much indeed uh, for that, Rod. It's a rather uh, depressing uh, summary of the situation, though. Um, would you say, though, that they are all as bad as one another when they get to a certain size? Or are there some good apples? You, know, you mentioned the way the media portrays as bad apples, uh, you know, where they do occasionally report, but are they all as bad or are there some decent companies out there, so, big companies? I remember when I was uh, first reading uh, The Corporation, so this, this book and film that came out 20 years ago, and they did talk about an example of a good company. It was a, it was like um, a medium large-ish American company. I think they made carpets. It's not a name that I knew, and I haven't researched it since. But they were saying that, so they were talking to the senior people from that company, and their whole ethos was about not doing harm. It was about making sure the employees were all treated well and with respect and had good working conditions. A bit like if you go back through history to uh, Henry Ford, most famously, making the Model T Ford, and he made this point that if you don't pay your employees enough for them to buy your cars then you know your business isn't going to be successful so treating the employees well was an important part of the way he did business and i think mm. historically there may have been a more general kind of ethical perspective to many companies now i i think it's hard to say if there are, if you looked at say the FTSE 100 the biggest 100 companies in britain and said are there any that are completely ethical Maybe you could find one or two. So it's it's very clear there's um, there's half a dozen really major industries. I mean, the biggest industries. So finance would be probably the biggest of them all. Mm -hmm. And we'll do the financial crisis and the financial companies, a completely separate presentation on another week. But a, an interesting thing came out of that financial crisis that they interviewed some of the people, the senior people from Goldman Sachs, and they said, well, look, we saw customers or clients as, and the, the phrase they used was Muppets to be ripped off. Well, mm. if you've got a whole banking system that sees its goal as ripping off everybody, I mean, we're talking about everyone in the world, then you know, what is the point of having mm. such a banking system? It makes no sense. And I think this idea of profits and shareholder focus and a trend in the last few decades for companies to think more and more in the short term about their profits and their share price and so on has exaggerated the problem that they're behaving more and more mm. um, unethically. And one of the industries that I talk about uh, quite a lot in my writing is the pharmaceutical industry. And then again, we might talk about that specifically in relation Indeed. to patients and so on uh, in another week. Um, mm. But An industry, in my opinion, that is ripe for uh, nationalisation, actually. But anyway. Well, I, uh, I agree with you 100%. Once people look at it in detail mm. and they say, what's it doing? They realise it's not fit for purpose. It really is mm. not. Mm. And uh, the profit motive causes it to do so many either mm. criminal or certainly unethical things that you've got to start questioning why they're allowed to exist uh, in the first place. So mm. I, I think the vast majority of big companies are now so focused on short-term returns that they're all doing more and more unethical things. The extent to which any one company can get away with crimes depending on where they operate. So mm. it's only British Aerospace 
that can pay a $7 billion bribe to the Saudis to get them to buy their weapons. So other mm. companies can't easily do that. But they'll do yeah. other things that are fraudulent uh, and yeah. so on. So and the scandal I, there, Rod, that you, that you mentioned, of course, is the British government, I'm not sure, I think it was Tony Blair was the Prime Minister, wasn't he, at the time, intervened to stop the investigation. It's an absolute disgrace, but there so, we are. So, so this is the interesting thing, that actually when you, when you start digging, I've been asked over the years, um, who do I perceive as the sort of greatest threat to ordinary people? Is it the government or is it big companies? And the, the question slightly misunderstands how things work. So mm. as a kind of general rule, it's, it's probably always the case that the greatest threat to any individual is their own government. But the problems arise when governments decide to align their kind of political yeah. power with the profit motive, with corporate power and with great wealth, instead of working in the interests of the population. And well, I that's think been a point that I've been making, Rod, for some time. And uh, having experienced at close quarters the Houses of uh, Parliament, in my opinion, my humble opinion, the vast bulk of them are really agents for the, the corporate world, you know, for, the, for these robber barons that you've actually are uh, talking about and the influence that they have with their huge uh, sort of resources at their disposal in terms of lobbying, et cetera, it gives them, you know, un an undue influence. But it seems to me, Rod, I mean, you mentioned that this has been, a, you know, well, it's got particularly worse, you said, I think, over the last few decades. And isn't it the case, therefore, then, that, it, that, that the, the cancer really here is neoliberalism that was heralded, in, of course, by Margaret Thatcher and uh, Ronald Reagan, the, uh, the sort of unholy alliance, the axis of evil, you might say, between Reagan and Thatcher. So is it inevitable what you're saying uh, with, with the present capitalist system? It, you know, all these excesses and abuses that you've identified, uh, is it inevitable or not? Well, so I, th I, think, I think that the word inevitable may be just a tiny, tiny bit too strong, but very close. So oddly enough, I've come across, but haven't researched in any detail, people talking about Finland and Sweden so with Sweden, um, I came across somebody writing, suggesting that actually the reason Sweden was so successful for many decades, probably more so than most other advanced economists in terms of raising the living standards of the poorest people, was they had a sort of unwritten agreement that the most powerful economic actors, the richest people, would actually just take a step back from politics and wouldn't get involved, provided the politicians kind of left them alone, if that makes sense. And so the, the politicians could then focus on looking after the needs of the 99%. And then I was researching, I'd come across something relating to Finland, where somebody said, with a big Finnish company, if they want to set up a subcontractor's operation overseas, then there is a severe obligation on the Finnish company to properly investigate conditions overseas and to employ inspectors to make sure that things are safe and to make sure that working conditions are mm. within certain Finnish standards uh, and so on. So I, I think there's a number of kind of different layers to this. I think mm. you could create very strict government regulations that would control the worst aspects of companies. But you, well, you've, you've, you've anticipated my next question, Rod, actually, because I was going to say, is the answer then regulation or public ownership of companies when they get to a certain size? Or maybe, if not full scale public ownership, a, a huge 
public sector stake in companies when they get over a certain size, like a golden share, perhaps? So um, I think there's a number of different ways you could do it. And it's impossible to know with certainty what the outcome would be in any country. I think with the politicians we have at the moment in Britain, unfortunately, <laughs> in the Conservative Party in power in the government, but also in, in the opposition, uh, I, I think that they have so little interest in reigning mm. in the worst aspects of companies that... Um, they're just not interested in doing it. So, for instance, after the 2008 financial crisis, I was doing some research on think tanks. And in think tank after think tank, even the right-wing think tanks, there would be somebody, often a kind of politician, writing some wishy-washy, oh, we need a more ethical capitalism. But there was no specifics, no detail. Nobody actually talked about it seriously in policymaking circles. And so nothing was done. It was very, very vague. And I think that's all that will ever come of the current set of politicians that we have. So mm. my own view is that ultimately, if you want to sort of rescue this system for the long term, then nationalizing all of the biggest, most powerful industries so that the profit motive is removed and they all have to be operated for the benefit of society is the only way to be certain of coming up with a system that will work for everyone and will work in the long term. I think if you have stricter laws, which you could do, you could stop the worst criminal activities, but you'd still have this enormous gray area of unethical activity. And until you stop the companies lobbying the governments and you know their company lawyers drafting the laws and so on, saying that, oh, well, this thing that probably in a reasonable society should be illegal, uh, we'll just say it's, it's legal but, and people can recognize it's unethical, but we won't do anything about it. I think that would just happen a lot. So I'm not convinced that going down this, what some people call a sort of absolutist or a legalist uh, route, would, would really work. I think companies are so big and so powerful and they have so much more, more information than the people who are supposed to regulate them. So nobody really knows what a weapons company is doing in Saudi Arabia or nobody knows what a mining company is doing in Indonesia. You know, it's incredibly difficult to properly oversee them. I think unless you change the whole mindset of these organizations so they're serving the public and not pursuing profit, I don't think anything um will uh, will change that's i mean that's a huge challenge isn't it as you've said with with our current crop of uh, politicians and, and in some yeah. ways you can you can get you know a little sort of uh, depressed about the about the prospect really of um, of turning this uh, situation around but of course one of the things that we've seen when politicians who do put the head of all the parapet and others on the periphery talk in the terms that you've been talking about and if they get get a platform and start to get a bigger platform they are absolutely demonized and traduced in the mainstream corporate media which as we know is the mouthpiece for the very powerful vested interests these powerful forces that you've been talking about and it's difficult to cut through that i think we now have with what we're obviously doing tonight and social media and so on although you know it's the big giant the corporate giants own that as well and they're trying to limit our access to uh those platforms as you know and there are attempts being made to to create alternative platforms but you know ordinary regular people when i've sort of spoken to people you know on the doorstep and um, you know in the pubs and clubs and whatever else and when i was younger and you know, you talked in the sort of terms 
that you've been talking, um, maybe not quite as sophisticatedly as what you've been speaking about, but just those general concepts. You know, even ordinary kind of working class people are fearful about that because obviously they read this in the newspaper and they see it is, it's, uh, oh, it's extremism, it's dangerous, it'll bankrupt the country, you know, da dee da How do we cut through that, Rod? I mean, I think you've got some ideas, haven't you, about engaging with, um, you know, with, with, with teachers and, and, and lecturers, et cetera, to try and, you know, get this message out there because knowledge is power, isn't it? So what would you say about that, Rod? Yeah, so so I, I'm a great believer that knowledge is power. I feel that knowledge is kind of just the first step, if that makes yeah. sense. Without the mm. knowledge, you have no power. You have no chance of being no, no. And it seems to me that um, if we're really to bring about the, the sorts of changes that we're going to require in society, we have to get uh, this type of topic talked about much more honestly, much more widely. So I think the obvious places to try to do that would firstly be universities. So in fact, I'm just trying to line up for September when everything reopens, that I'll go and talk to various groups of people uh, in universities. So I, I always think if there's anybody who's in the audience who's either uh, an academic or a student uh, who might be interested in talking about these things, then they should get in touch with me and, um, and we'll try to find ways to get this out to a much bigger audience. But I think ultimately, the best way to, to make sure that people are capable of having this type of conversation, because it's not just a conversation about one topic like corporate crime. It, it goes across the board about all the topics that we're going to be discussing that we started in the last few weeks, we're going to talk about in the future, that uh, at the moment, people are not really given the basic information necessary to enable them to engage in serious questioning of these topics or serious critical thinking. And I know in schools, uh, occasionally you meet a teacher and they say, well, we are trying to teach critical thinking. But in fact, all the evidence is that if you teach critical thinking as a kind of vague conceptual thing, it actually gets you nowhere. You, can, you have to do it in a, in a sort of, you have to give people information relating to the topic you want people to be critical about. So we're actually going to have to start giving more information that is more questioning and more critical to more people. And if we can ever get this type of topic in schools, then I think we could have an amazing transformation uh, in, in terms of the way people think. And I think there's a real fear at the moment. What you've said about the press is, is right on the nail, that the, the system in Britain, and we're going to do a separate thing on the press um, in a future week, but it's incredibly powerful, it's very sophisticated, and it's very good at shutting down questioning voices very, very fast. You've experienced this. Jeremy Corbyn's experienced this. Uh, Russell Brand experienced this, that actually we had a celebrity who was getting a lot of attention, being very critical of the worst aspects of capitalism. And then the media kind of just closed ranks and they very aggressively uh, attacked him. And as you say, they, uh, they say that these are extremist ideas or radical ideas, when in fact, of course, the, the existing system it's is extreme. an extremist system. Yes, this absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If people yeah. can just take this on board to mm -hmm. recognise that a system where immensely powerful companies do nothing but pursue their own profit, irrespective of the crimes and unethical behaviours and the harm they do to everybody else, that's a really insane system. No mm -hmm. ordinary person would think, yeah, let's, let's create a system like that. Everyone can actually engage with this. And one of the things about corporate crime as a specific topic 
is actually even right-wing people do believe no, in the of the law. They believe that yeah. the law should be applied. And once you get talking to them about saying, but the law isn't applying to big companies, they're operating outside the law, they're breaking the law all the time, then actually you can engage with a very broad spectrum of the population and get them saying, yeah, actually, this is important, isn't it? And yes. one of the things we talked about in the first week was the extent to which the economic system is rigged to concentrate wealth into the hands of big companies and then ultimately mm. uh, rich people. Much of that happens through this very corrupt corporate system, paying very large amounts to executives and to yeah. shareholders. And they're not really earning that money. And if you can actually get people saying, look, this is a lot of criminal activity creating this profit and creating this concentration of wealth, then even some people that you would traditionally perhaps not have aligned yourself with on other issues, you get them saying, well, yes, okay, we do need to make sure the law works in relation to, to big companies. So there is the opportunity, I think, to have a much broader debate, even into the media, that the, the, the concepts we're talking about in terms of corporate crime, where once you start listing all the different crimes and you look at the FTSE 100 and you see how many of them have committed very, very serious crimes, it's, it's very difficult for journalists to just deny that this is happening. It's difficult mm. for them to smear you as an extremist if you're saying, look at these corporate crimes. So I think mm. there is the possibility that the case is so strong that, that we could get lots of people involved. And once more people start talking about these things, then you have the chance to get the media involved and to start saying, look, if the media aren't yeah. interested, they're the extremists. Um, I mean, what I used to argue, Rod, when I was doing my uh, Democracy Roadshow was to talk about common sense socialism, that what we're talking about actually is not extreme in any way, shape or form. It's, it's basic common sense. And indeed... Yeah. And I've spoken about this on numerous occasions when Giles Brandreth went looking for secret socialists in Guildford. And you found that lots of people on the street, even in the, in the kind of Tory heartland of Guildford, were actually supportive of the concepts that Jeremy Corbyn was uh, 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 sort of espousing at, at, that, at that time. But just in terms of uh, you mentioned schools and you mentioned uh, you know universities, and, and oh, clearly they're very, very important institutions. And if we could you know, get some of this stuff in there, you know, get young people to start thinking about these things in a critical way, like you say, then that obviously is is, is, a, is a beginning, hopefully, of, of a process and a, and a beginning of the change that's desperately needed. But what about the role of trade unions in terms of political education and, and empowering their members? Because sometimes the trade unions can be quite conservative and, and supportive, for example, of the arms industry, the nuclear, and I mean, I had this issue in my own backyard, for example, because in Rolls-Royce, uh, or a, a small section of Rolls-Royce in Derby, uh, are involved in the propulsion system for the um, Trident submarines. And when Jeremy was talking about scrapping Trident and, you know, talking about defence diversification, I mean, there was a late, great deal of fear uh, amongst them. When I spoke to them about it, said, but, you know, this is about um, not throwing anybody out of work, it's about defence diversification, et cetera, et cetera. They, they were kind of very sceptical about that, as were some of the trade union leadership people like uh, um, the leader of the GMB, uh, is it Sir Paul Kitchen, who's now retired, and and his uh, successor, uh, uh, similarly, were just very sceptical. And and uh, indeed, uh, Tim Roach uh, spoke to me and said that uh, you know he was comparing Jeremy Corbyn to Margaret Thatcher. 
I mean, it's absurd, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, what, uh, I mean, even if Jeremy was saying, we're going to, we're going to take this money. We're not going to, we're going to put it somewhere else. Um, we're going to throw all of those people who are involved in Trident on the dole. Um, in Derby's case, and indeed, apart from Barrow, I mean, there are very few people in reality. I mean, it's not like the mining industry where, you know, there are whole communities were absolutely destroyed by that. But that wasn't what was being said in any event, actually. And the whole system is kind of falling down around our ears anyway. When you see jobs being offshored to low-wage economies, etc., you know, you look at the number of manufacturing jobs that used to be in this country. I mean, in my own city, you know, where there was, when I left school, about 120,000 people. You could walk in and into a into a you know good, well-paid job in engineering very, very easily in those days. It's not, not the, no longer the case anymore. So the system's broken. The system ain't working. So I think, you know, finding that correct narrative, uh, that correct messaging, as it were, to, you know, ease the fears of the horses who are not frightening the horses and giving them the, you know, as it were, the uh, the wherewithal to be able to sort of take on somebody's called. So, so just what's your thoughts about the trade unions? Because you didn't mention that as, as, a, as, a, as a vehicle for, for some of these discussions. Yeah, so, so I think the trade unions is quite a complex issue. My, my experience and my wife's experience with the, her union in relation to lecturers has not really been very positive. That, that often they can end up being their own sort of worst enemy and they end up focusing very narrowly and they have a, a certain way of doing things that they're very used to and anything you, you kind of say, say well, let's take a big picture look, let's, let's try and think more strategically or more holistically, that they find that, that uh, kind of very, very difficult, I think. And I, I don't know that there's an easy solution to that. I, th I think we've got to get... Uh, anyone who's a member of a union trying to talk within the union to their membership and to their kind of senior leaders saying, let's have bigger debates and more complex discussions and try and do kind of what I'm trying to do in, in other places about saying, you know, we have to stop thinking in very narrow terms um, because actually our society is being destroyed. And if unions kind of keep and shooting themselves in the foot in the long term, um, uh, it's going to be bad, bad for everyone. So I guess society, Rod, it's uh, that like the, the the environment is being destroyed. And uh, there was an interesting doc is an interesting documentary on Netflix at the moment about the the horrors of the fishing industry. Actually, I mean, I'm not speaking just as a vegan, uh, but just in terms of the degradation of the um, the ecosystem the marine ecosystem the uh, abuses of human rights the ruthless grotesque exploitation of uh, of workers and of course you know the, the quality of the uh, you know of, of the products as well uh, you know with the fish farming and uh, i mean if people haven't seen it they should they should watch the the, the program fish piracy because it's uh, quite an eye-opening uh, documentary actually and, and that really typifies the sort of excesses that that you were outlining with some of the examples you gave earlier in your presentation, Rod. Yeah. Well, so I haven't actually studied the fishing industry. You know, there's, there's always more industries that I want to research, but you come across examples yeah. from every industry you touch upon. Well, one statistic, Rod, just to quickly, just to cut across you there, that, that I was really interested in. We're all being told, quite rightly, to be careful about plastic and the uh, way that's being discarded and ending up in the ocean. But 46 percent According to this uh, documentary, uh, which has looked into this, 46% of the uh, plastic pollution in the oceans is from the fishing industry. We discarded Yes, apparently, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I, so they're, they're, they're creating huge devastation in our, in our oceans. And uh, there's nothing – well, I mean, obviously, there's this thing on Netflix, which is great, and that's a mainstream platform. 
but you don't see it in the uh, in the news media at all. No, so so that, that's interesting. So I was not aware of that. And as you say, you wouldn't know that from reading the, the mainstream press. So what, what I, I hope people who are listening are starting to realize that you can't kind of learn about all of these topics just in a kind of hour a week, listening to a couple of people having no. a chat and so mm. on. It, it actually requires that people really decide that they want to understand these things inside out and understanding is going to become part of their lives and obviously i understand this is very difficult a lot of people are working extremely hard uh and fighting to get by but one of the things that i've wanted to suggest perhaps to um uh some of your listeners is to say let's start thinking about what we can do in specific areas that might gradually start to make a difference and to me because i study propaganda and you'll understand when we come to do the topic on the media and propaganda more generally later on why it is that i'm so critical of the mainstream media every time somebody watches mainstream news and current affairs or reads an article in the mainstream press in the mainstream press they understand the world less well and <laughs> yes. the only way you will yeah. ever really understand the world is to get your news and your current affairs information from other sources that are more critical yeah. And you actually yeah. have to wean yourself off newspapers and TV news and current affairs. So I was wondering if we might kind of suggest an experiment for your some of your viewers this week, if they feel up to it, to try not to watch current affairs and news on mainstream television, not to read a newspaper this week, but the time you would normally spend doing that, just spend a bit of time trying to research on the internet any topic that you think is really interesting. And in fact, the reason I've written the blogs is because they are intended each to be a very simple beginner's guide to that particular topic to help people understand the key arguments. And then from there, there's further reading and there's references and they can decide what they're interested in and they can go and understand it better. And then people can come back in next week or the week after, depending on when we have our next session. And if people have tried this for a week or two and they've, they thought, wow, actually, yeah, suddenly I feel I'm not being brainwashed or bamboozled every time I sit down and watch TV. And over yeah. time, if you if you start doing this regularly, you will eventually come back occasionally You'll, you'll be at a friend's house and you'll see the news or you'll see a newspaper and you start to realize just how much of the mainstream is propaganda. It is distorted to make you think in a way that is uncritical of the system, the various systems, the military economic systems and yeah. so on. And well, I'm looking forward to our session on the uh, on the media, Rob. That's going to be uh, – we never have enough time, actually, because it's absolutely fascinating. We could go on for two or three hours this evening, but I'm sure we'd probably lose listeners. Uh, Rod, I, I should bring in now, because uh, we've got less than 10 minutes to go, uh, bring in Lizzie just to sort of see what people uh, who've been watching have been saying, whether they've got any comments or questions that they wanted to put to you in the last 10 minutes. Over to you, Lizzie. You need to unmute un un yourself, I think. We still can't hear you, Lizzie. No, I was muted. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I saw there was some interference on the sound at the beginning. Ah. So oh. uh, I realised that I was unmuted at the time. Ah. So no, I no, muted no, myself no. and forgot all about it. I, I, never, I never noticed, Lizzie, but you're obviously more observant than me. But anyway, what's well, been the reaction of our viewers? Well, time? a lot of people with a lot of reactions, a lot of people saying they don't watch television anymore anyway, oh, um, about your latest uh, 
what you said um, mm. allow those that drop out of school to help design the education system now would that be that's that's um, if it ain't broke don't fix it that's the system is broken so let's fix it that's pretty basic stuff isn't it that would be hard to achieve so uh, I'm not quite sure if those points were related or not but if you if we just focus on the phrase, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So the education system, in my opinion, whilst it's fine for teaching people to read and to write and to do uh, basic maths, um, in terms of helping young people understand the world, it is completely useless. I mean, absolutely not fit for purpose. And the funny thing is, if you hear people talking about improving the state education system, they will hold up the private education system, which I should point out I loathe, by the way, um, as the example, as the goal. But in fact, the private education system is really no better in uh, encouraging people to think critically about the world. And in fact, uh, because a lot of the parents of the children who are in the private education sector are so successful. They are the wealthy. They, in many cases, are the 1% or the 7% whose kids go to private school. They do very well out of the current system. Their parents, they really want their children to be all that critical of the current system. So it's important we don't hold the private system up as the benchmark or as a role model. It's important that we say anyone out there who's a teacher or a student, if we're thinking about the state education system in Britain, it is not fit for purpose because it does not actually teach people about power, about propaganda, which surrounds us every day, about uh, conflicts of interest, about how the world really works. In fact, it doesn't teach anyone about all the most important things about how our society actually functions. You know, and even if you go to university level, the teaching of economics, finance, politics, international relations, I've spoken to lots of academics, 95% of them are teaching a very mainstream, uncritical view of the world. It's a small proportion of lecturers spread throughout Britain, spread throughout America, maybe 5%, depending on the field, that is trying to say the current system actually isn't working. These are the strongest criticisms. You know, and I, I speak to students and the students love hearing that critical information. They come out of lectures where they've heard that stuff and they say, finally, I feel I've learned something. Finally, I yeah. feel I've understood something about the world yeah. that nobody has taught me for 20 years. <laughs> you know, my, my wife does it at university and she gets the most amazing feedback from some of her students. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's a real problem. And whilst the, the government are probably not likely, certainly this government, aren't going to introduce more critical thinking in schools, I think there are probably lots of teachers who individually would like to introduce more critical thinking in schools and would like their students to understand the world better. And I think there is the possibility of beginning a conversation with them and saying, let's start thinking about how we can get children to really understand the world, to be much more engaged and to be much more political as they grow up. Yeah. Right. Well, we have uh, we do have one positive story on your, you know, uh, Chris's suggestion that are there any 
uh, corporations that are decent. Dan Price, the owner of Gravity Payments, he took a pay cut of $1 million and paid all of his staff $70,000 minimum wage. So that's one. So that, that's, that's in the entire world. <laughs> that sounds very positive. It would be really interesting to actually do see a really good analysis of that company and make sure that every aspect of it was was ethical. But that's a, a, a great sort of positive note. So the point is, actually, there are a small number of billionaires. There's a very famous one in America who's been talking about this for years now. And I, if his name comes to me, I'll, I'll, I'll say what it is. It's, it's gone for the second. But in Seattle, he has been active. Yeah, Richard Reich. It's not. Oh, no. So he's, uh, he's a kind of former U.S. government kind of uh, advice and spokesperson. So this is somebody who's not related to government, but he has introduced or he's been part of a group of people that in Seattle in America introduced a $15 minimum wage. And the system is thriving. So he's, he's very mainstream in terms of his capitalist views, but he's also a believer in the Henry Ford You've got to pay yeah. your employees well. So it might not be entirely ethical, but at least they're getting one part of the system right, yeah. which is to make yeah. sure that the lowest paid people are, are well paid. Mm. We've probably got time for one more comment, uh, Lizzie, and then we're going to have to wrap it. Uh, somebody, uh, David Davis, the MP, has stood up to challenge the NHS data grab. Um, so you were talking about working across parties, across beliefs, uh, systems. Uh, Giles Brandreth, secret socialist, was another comment. 46% um, of ocean plastic pollution is from the fishing industry. And did you know that, um, according to uh, HLS, Human Love Solidarity, that um, but most of the, the plastic breaks down into microscopic particles and it co goes into your body? And apparently the only way that your body can get rid of this accumulation of plastic microscopic particles is by the woman giving birth and, and, the, and the plastic particles are passed on to the child. And then yeah. so the woman gets rid of them. And how how astounding is that? If if that is, in fact, correct. Um, how astounding is that that we are the orchestrators of our own demise? Well, that's the capitalist system for us, isn't it, really? Yeah. Well, I, guess. But, so I, th I think the, the, the final point you made, I, I can't engage specifically with things about plastics and in our bodies and so on. I, that's, I haven't researched any of these uh, areas. The thing about us being the orchestrators of our own demise, I think is incredibly true. And I, I think if you look at the way inequality in Britain and America, but other advanced nations too, is heading, and it shows no sign of changing direction, uh, then if people do not get off their backsides very soon, we're going to be in a real mess. Yeah. yeah. I think we'll have to wrap it there. Thanks very much indeed, Rod, for another excellent uh, programme this evening. And uh, we look forward to your uh, next one. Uh, that's it for tonight's uh, programme, though. Uh, so I hope everybody's uh, enjoyed this evening. Next week, we've got Dr. Bob Gill, who's going to be joining us to talk about the latest health bill before Parliament, which, if it isn't stopped, will pave the way to the wholesale privatisation of our National Health Service. So join us then if you can. Thanks for watching tonight and good night.